good to be with everybody. Good to see Saunders folks here. It's always nice when they're around. Uh, I, I miss seeing them. One of the events we get to see each other at throughout the year, in addition to coming and visiting here, and it's one of my favorite things, is the, the preacher's retreat uh, at WCYC in September. And I look forward to them being kind of my, my dinner date uh, every night when we get to go and, and eat together and, and visit. And they weren't there this year. And I couldn't figure out why, and, uh, and then I realized they saw the agenda and saw that I was speaking this past September, and <laughs> it's really hard to ignore that. It's hard, the one year you miss, you know, goodness, but, um, you know, everybody's got to find a way to get to sleep when they're up there, and that, I was, that was me this year. Uh, we're continuing our series this morning, dealing with the instructions in Scripture and the encouragement in Scripture to clothe ourselves a certain way to be wrapped in Jesus, to be clothed in Christ, to put on righteousness and salvation. This concept that is expressed in Scripture, both in Old and New Testament, has some really important cultural reasons for its significance, but it also helps us to understand what the Christian life really ought to look like. Christianity is not merely a belief in something, and it's not merely just actions reflecting a belief. It is a way of life, inasmuch as what we wear, how we dress, and the way that we prepare ourselves for the environment we're going to face is is something that tells people who we are. And so today we're going to look at one of the, probably the clearest example in Scripture of how we are to dress ourselves for the task of our faith, and that comes in Ephesians, uh, in, in part what Travis just read for us. It's been a really interesting week, week and a half now. Uh, If you watch the news, you see that um, things have gone from bad to worse in our world, it seems, over the last few years. And just when we think we're coming out of one dark moment, we have another. And uh, almost two weeks ago now, it may have been two weeks ago now, um, Russia chose, after many, many years of posturing, to invade uh, the country of Ukraine. There's a whole lot of geopolitical stuff behind all of that. But one thing that's been really interesting to to witness is the response of people who have grown up in generations that have not known war the way war has been fought in the past. My generation has experienced some war, but it's it's been different than what, say, my grandparents' generation experienced. When we were at war in World War II, it had some major impacts on the daily life of the average American. Though outside of the attack on Pearl Harbor, there was not a single battle fought on our soil for that conflict, uh, it affected life. It impacted life. Certain supplies had to be rationed. We had to, uh, certain segments of society had to enter the workforce. Families were disrupted by the loss of life. My grandparents' generation sees war very differently. Even my parents' generation sees war very differently because of the experience of Vietnam and the fact that conscription was still a part of life for young men in this country. My generation grew up with volunteer military forces fighting battles well overseas in places we had never heard of or even seen It changed our life here day to day very, very little 
and a lot of war was fought with technology that allowed for minimal loss of civilian and military life. And we're a pretty powerful nation when it comes to military, and things were over pretty quick. So my generation understanding the aggression of Russia toward Ukraine and what that means is very different from people who lived through World War II or who are students of history and see those things happening because it feels familiar. that They have a whole different perspective on the impact of this action than people my age do. My generation doesn't understand war. We've grown up in peacetime. We don't get it. As Christians, one of the hardest things for us to do is to convince ourselves that we are at war, spiritually. Because most of us have grown up and existed in a place and time where you were allowed to believe and practice whatever you wanted. What we call persecution today for other people in other places and other times would laugh at what we call persecution. Oh my goodness, Starbucks took Merry Christmas off of their cups. Folks, we are in a war and, and we don't realize it because we've become so accustomed to peace spiritually. And the things we think are battles are nothing close to battle. Scripture shows us a different picture of the normal state of being for Christians. We are always at war. We are always in a battle. When you look at the images of, of Isaiah and Ezekiel and later Revelation, you see there's war going on all the time around us, spiritual warfare, spiritual battle. Paul talks a lot about spiritual battle and spiritual warfare, especially here in Ephesians. His Ephesian letter is evidence. It is evidence to us that all spiritual warfare starts in the same place. Now, the issues that Paul was dealing with in Ephesus were really complicated and kind of extreme by our experiential standards. Uh, there were groups of people that were trying to pervert the gospel for their own personal gain and introduce things into worship that we would consider unthinkable. This was not just people disagreeing about, um, about a church building or about something the preacher said. This was a subversion of the gospel by a sect of people locally in Ephesus. Paul is writing to encourage Christians to fight that and how to fight it. But he sums it up by making clear in chapter 6 toward the end of the book that all of this battle you're engaged in is from the devil. It's from Satan. And we have to remember that. Whether or not we're familiar with spiritual warfare because we feel like we've experienced it or not, it is happening. There are battles that are going on around us that we don't see. Our eyes aren't made to see those things. And they manifest themselves physically in battles against our faith, whether it be temptation we face every day, whether it be conflict within our churches and within our faith communities, whether it be the challenges of relationships or even our own spiritual journey and the questions that we have about God, his existence, and his son Paul makes it clear that all of those things come from the same source, and that's Satan. The really tricky thing about Satan is, and I, I mentioned this in our Revelation class a lot, in order for Jesus to win, you've got to look at Jesus. In order for the devil to win, you just have to look anywhere else. 
So the devil has a lot of tools at his disposal to draw you off course and to pull you off course, and he uses all of them. And Paul says, there's a certain way you've got to dress yourself to prepare for that battle. We don't know what that's like. We're out of practice, quite frankly. We struggle with the complacency of feeling like we're at war or feeling like we're not at war. We don't acknowledge the battle going on because we don't feel it, but it's there. And what we wear and how we dress and how we clothe ourselves spiritually has a lot to do with daily, repeated choices we make to clothe ourselves a certain way. The average person in here, if we were to dress ourselves for modern warfare to go into battle, we would have a tough time. It's a lot of weight, it's a lot of bulk, and it's environmental conditions that we are not accustomed to. Now, there's a couple people in here that could probably handle it. I don't doubt that. But we have not known and have not trained for warfare, and we don't often understand and train well for spiritual warfare. And so we have to make that real to us and daily make the effort to dress ourselves, as Paul instructs here, to be ready for that battle. There's some elements that are a part of this. Remember remember, uh, the story of David when he goes to face Goliath. What's the first thing that Saul and his lieutenants try to do? They say, well, you got to get dressed up for battle, right? you got to put all the equipment on, put the helmet and the, 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 the shield and the sword. And it was bulky and it was uncomfortable. David was a shepherd. He wasn't a soldier. But also David understood he didn't need all of that. He wasn't going into battle with the armaments of men. He was going into battle with a faith in God to deliver him. There's elements of that in what Paul writes here. Because while he uses physical armor as the allegory, and by the way, it's a beautiful allegory when you consider how those things line up with the purpose of those elements. He uses these human instruments as a teaching tool for helping us understand what was David, for instance, armed with? And what should we be armed with to fight this battle? And what does that look like when we're clothing ourselves? So there's this beautiful kind of figurative speech here, this allegory, this metaphor about this suit of armor, which makes perfect sense even to us. We we don't fight with suits of armor like this anymore, right? But we understand it. We've seen the pictures. We've heard the stories. So we kind of get an idea. And when we see that metaphor and we understand that we are instructed to prepare for battles that we do not even see with elements that God has blessed us with, that is where we are on solid footing to do the will of God. So let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we are. We'll begin in verse 10. Finally, I love that. If you want to know what he's saying about finally, go back and read the rest of the book, okay? But he's summing it up here. And this book is all about strengthening their local congregation. Ephesians is about the strength of the local church and the steadfastness of a family of believers in the face of overwhelming pressure. They were facing pressure from an insurgent spiritual battle. And he's been encouraging them along the way. And in chapter 6, he's talking about their relationships 
their relationships as husbands and wives, uh, which is earlier in the book. He's talking about the relationships of the young and old, the relationships of slaves and masters, and how those can be strengthened in faith. And he sums up this book here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, right away, he is telling the reader, you draw your source of strength, your source of power in God. Be strong in him. On your own, you will not find the strength to withstand what this world will throw at you. But through God, you will find a strength that is steadfast and enduring. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Why? Why is that, Paul? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And he makes very clear the source of all this strife and battle. It's Satan. He's going to try to trip you up. He's going to try to disrupt your church. He's going to try to fracture your friendships. He's going to try to make you feel like you're not worthy. He's going to try to make you feel like your life is headed in the wrong direction. He's going to try to make you feel like a failure. He is going to absolutely try to devour you. And everything you see happening in your life that you think is just bad luck and bad timing and people out to get you, it's not that Satan is a puppet master pulling all the strings to make bad things happen. It's that Satan knows the way to wiggle into your brain and make you think that all of that that's happening to you has the power to destroy you and that God can't do anything to stop it. Satan will use every opportunity, everything that we encounter in life to try and destroy us. That's the schemes of the devil. The scheme of the devil is to let this world overwhelm you. And Paul says, in order to stand against that, you've got to be armed. You've got to be protected. Paul says in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says, we've been talking a lot about all the things that are trying to disrupt you there in Ephesus. And for us, we take that on, you know, apply that to us, and we see Paul saying, we're talking about how to be strong against what this world's going to throw at you, but what this world is throwing at you is not really the danger. It's how Satan uses it. It's how Satan manipulates and guides the forces of this world to destroy you. And you've got to be ready to stand up against it because this war is happening spiritually. Verse 13, here's Paul's advice. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Standing our ground. That's what we're after. Stand firm, therefore. And here he goes. He's going to go through the, the wardrobe here. Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having strapped on your feet the preparation for the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You know, when we look at the armor of God, and we'll get to the, the beautiful metaphor here in, in a minute, sometimes our armor looks a little different than Ephesians chapter 6, doesn't it? 
Sometimes we think we're well-armed. We think that we're wearing the proper adornments and the proper equipment for what we need. And yet we find that we fooled ourselves into some kind of a fabrication or something that's not quite right. When we read what Paul is telling us to gird ourselves with, to, to clothe ourselves in, to arm ourselves with, we read about a belt of truth. A belt of truth around your waist. This is the thing that anchors everything else together. We put that around. That holds everything else up and keeps our, everything in place that we can use it. It protects us. The belt is the central point on which everything else rests. And that's why truth is so important. But do we buckle a belt of truth around our waist in our spiritual battle? Or do we buckle around the belt of personal preference? I want things to be this way, so I will act as if. I want to live like this, and I want to believe that the Bible says this, and I want to believe that God is telling me this. And so we see the world and we see our spiritual battle through the lens of what we wish it were rather than the truth of what it is. Being grounded in truth doesn't mean that we're all going to always look the same. There, there's there's a, almost a theory of how we read the Bible that if, if we all read the same scriptures and we read it the same way, we'll all come to the same conclusion. Alexander Campbell believed that unity amongst Christians was going to be achieved by going back to the Bible because if we all just read the Bible, we'd all agree and we'd all do things the same way and that we'd have unity of practice through Scripture. You can't get five people to interpret the same verse the same way. It's, it's a fool's errand to try and do so. That's a fact of life. When we think of truth, it is not necessarily a uniformity of practice. Truth is the absolute bedrock of the existence that we experience as defined by God. Truth exists in the realm of who Jesus is and what he did on this earth and in our life. That is the truth on which we are based. Now, the other things that grow off of that, there's room there for us to discuss and, and figure those things out. But the belt of truth that we're concerned with is not a uniform adherence to particular practice so much as a uniform acceptance of the basic fact that God is God, I am not him, and his son died for me. We have to start there. The other things are important. The other things are valuable. But when we're buckling the belt of truth, that truth is a deep, abiding, foundational truth. And we have picked it apart with our personal preference. We hear phrases like, well, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. He wants me to have these things. Oh, you know, I'm not worried about Satan. We have personal viewpoints, personal preferences, personal ideas about who God should be and what he should be doing. We try to make God into some kind of lapdog that obeys what we wish, or we make ourselves into God. And that's not who we are, and that's not who he is. We're to put on a belt of truth, not the belt of personal preference. The breastplate of righteousness we often replace with a breastplate of superficial Christianity. Righteousness is a deep identifying characteristic that makes us worthy of a place in the throne room of God. 
it is not something we possess on our own. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about being clothed in righteousness, and we'll dig into this a little deeper. But I'm going to tell you right now, you can look through your spiritual wardrobe. You will not find that you have purchased righteous at any store recently, righteousness at any store recently. What you will find is that you're clothed in righteousness because someone gave you those clothes. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But this breastplate of righteousness is not something that we have produced, and yet we try very hard to produce it. And we end up with a surface-level kind of faith that believes in doing certain actions a certain way, and that's pleasing to God. Superficial Christianity is no replacement for a breastplate of righteousness. And a breastplate is one of the fundamentally most important parts of the armor. It protects the vital organs. It protects the core of the body so that you can keep fighting, so that you're protected against the arrows and the, and the swords and uh, all the... the battle implements of the enemy. It keeps you going. It keeps you alive to keep fighting. Righteousness guards our heart. It keeps us alive when we otherwise would be dead. And yet, most of us in our, in our life, in our lifetime, will at some point choose a superficial kind of obedience because it's easier because it's more convenient, or because we convince ourselves that that's what's pleasing to God. Because we ultimately look at salvation and faith, and we look in the mirror and say, well, I've got to do better. The protective power of righteousness comes from God through his Son. And we settle for less and make it about our superficial faith, our superficial action, and rely on that to protect us. We're to have feet strapped with readiness. I like this one. Feet strapped with readiness. You are ready to go. You're sleeping with your shoes on because you're ready to jump up at a moment's notice and head out the door to wherever you've got to go. Feet strapped with readiness. Have you ever seen the the feet? Uh, Feet are kind of gross in my opinion, but maybe you've experienced it yourself. If you've got a job that keeps you on your feet a lot of the day, if you've got a job that you're working hard outdoors or maybe even indoors, I mean, uh, the, the toll that it takes on the body, even just like for teachers, for instance. You know, we might think teachers have, as far as, a you know, pretty cushy job, right? Pretty comfortable. They're indoors. And they're walking around on those hard tile floors all day, standing up, teaching. That, that takes a toll on the body physically, even something like that. I only have to stand for 45 minutes a week, so I'm good. But the body takes a toll, and the feet bear the weight, and they bear the workload. Feet get pretty beat up. We have to take care of them. You come to a certain point in life, a certain age, and you start paying for not taking care of them very well. As Christians, we're supposed to have some pretty beat up feet. We're supposed to have some feet that have seen some places and been some places and done some things. And we've got to have strapped on the ability to go down that road, to take off and to go and carry the gospel where it needs to be carried. Everybody where we live has pretty much heard about Jesus, haven't they? It's what what it feels like. I mean, in our country, we have a pretty strong history of Christianity, or at least an awareness of Christianity. Are we really 
fitted and ready to carry the gospel? Is there a need to carry the gospel? Or are our feet comforted by complacency? Not strapped and ready for work, not beat up and bruised and calloused from what we've been doing, but comfortable and soft in the complacency of not telling others about Jesus. Fear sometimes that's how we clothe ourselves. Growing up in a community that was heavily churched, heavily churched, it sometimes felt like evangelism wasn't so much evangelism as much as it was trying to get people to switch teams, get them to come to our church instead of the other church. And there are communities and parts of this country and this world where there's less Jesus than what we have here. But it's really hard to stay motivated and to understand that we're supposed to have our feet prepared, our feet ready to go, to hit the ground running, to share our faith. And yet we seem comforted in complacency. Where do we draw that motivation from? Where do we find the energy and the drive? Well, I think it comes from an honest assessment of who we are and what our journey has been. And that brings us to the shield of faith. The shield of faith is designed to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy, right? This is the defensive part of this armor. You got the breastplate, it's protective. You're going to have a helmet, you got a belt, but, but we're really excited about that sword. We'll get to that sword in a minute, but we're really excited about that sword. That's how we do some damage. But that shield, that's on the other arm, and that's something we can move about, that we can defend ourselves with. And those things that come in fast and hot and hard to destroy us and to put us down, we can hold up that shield. And that shield is our faith. The shield of faith is designed to protect you from Satan. But the reason that we struggle with being motivated to share the gospel sometimes is because we don't have an honest point of view of who we are. And instead of holding that shield of faith, which is grounded in the understanding that we are hopelessly lost without Jesus Christ, and we put our faith in him, our belief and our trust in him, we carry around a shield of self-reliant pride. How am I going to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one? I'll think of something. I'm a pretty good person. You know, that's one thing I've realized about myself. Boy, I grew up Christian home, good Christian home. I mean, anyone should be so lucky to grow up in the home I grew up in. Loving family, affectionate family. Went to Christian schools. Obviously, I'm a little closer to heaven than the rest of you public school people, right? Grew up in church. Constantly exposed to scripture and to good friends and influences and mentors. You would think, I must be a pretty good person, right? I would think that too. In fact, I have. And in the face of my own sin, and in the face of temptation that bombards me daily, I think to myself, you know, all in all, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, I treated that person horribly. I said some things I shouldn't have said. Yeah, I had that thought earlier. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I never let the battle be real to me because I don't see myself as a bad guy. Sinners are bad people. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not a bad one. I mean, I've never killed anybody. 
at least not intentionally. <laughs> but I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm kind. You know, it's not honest. That's not an honest assessment of who I am. And I hold a shield of self-reliant pride rather than something that honestly says, I'm helpless and hopeless without Jesus. That's a shield of faith. That's a shield of faith. We rest on being good people too often. We're to have a helmet. This helmet that we put on our, on our, um, on our heads. And the helmet is so important. The helmet... Uh, of course, it protects the brain, right? The central nervous system, the ability to keep fighting. It protects our vision. It protects uh, the, the ability to see where we're fighting and where we're going. The helmet of salvation is how Paul phrases it. The helmet of salvation. The fact that we are saved, the fact that we are in union with Christ, is a protective article that keeps us functioning, keeps us moving. It prevents damage being done to the most vital part of who we are because we're saved. And Paul calls that the helmet of salvation. How do we look at what sits atop our head? Is it a helmet of salvation as we understand the Bible to teach salvation? Or do we often get dressed in the morning for our spiritual warfare and put on the helmet of going to the right church? Boy, I'll tell you what, that's a hard one to avoid. Because look at the history of what human beings have done to church. What have we done? I mean, from the very, very beginning, look what happened to the early Christians. They they, They couldn't get 10 years past Jesus' death before they were fighting about stuff and arguing and dividing into camps. And as the centuries went on, faith became something that was institutionalized. You had the growth of Roman Catholicism. You had Protestantism, Lutheranism, Anglicanism, Presbyterianism, Methodism. It, on and on and on and on. Now, I'm not saying any of those people are evil in and of themselves, but faith by humans is often institutionalized. And when we institutionalize something, we become defenders of the institution. That's what our American Restoration Movement was designed to try and get rid of. We're not going to be an institution anymore. We're going to, it was, I mean, super progressive kind of liberal idea, really. Very laissez-faire kind of idea. We're going to let everybody have their faith and practice their faith, and we're going to consider all of us to be brethren. And what happened to it? Why don't we ask the independent Christian churches and the disciples of Christ and the churches of Christ what happened to it? Because we managed to institutionalize and divide it again, didn't we? Again, None of those things are are bad groups in and of themselves. But how do we identify ourselves? One of the most, one of the wisest phrases that was ever shared with me was Ryan Ryan Wilson. We were talking about this very thing one time at my dinner table. And he said, it feels sometimes like we're more interested in churchianity than Christianity. I love that phrase. Absolutely right. And our helmet that protects us should be the result of the salvation we have through Christ. That's what should guide us and cover us. By the way, the head is a very important idea, the concept of the head. When we read in Scripture about um, Christ is the head of the church, right? 
In fact, it's, it's in Ephesians. Um, Paul makes the statement that the, the husband is the head of the, of the wife. Uh, that's kind of a troubling passage, isn't it? Um, the word there that Paul uses, and the word that commonly was translated as head, which we think of as boss, in charge, in control. Uh, the head of something was kephala, which means protector or defender or developer. Jesus is our protector, our defender, our developer. He cares for us. Our helmet, the protector of our body, is Christ and the salvation that we receive through him. That might change the way you read that passage, by the way. It might change the way you see husbands and wives. Um, protectors, defenders, developers. Jesus sits atop our head, protecting and defending us. It's not a church. No priest or preacher or Christian author or building is going to get you there. And yet that becomes our identity. And we have to fight against that very carefully and very directly. And then we come to this sword. Oh, and we love the sword, right? Because nobody likes playing defense. That's no fun. When I've coached baseball and softball, you have those first couple practices, and I'm very much a fundamentals kind of person. I believe in the fundamentals. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go field some ground balls and catch some pop flies, and we're going to work on that for about two, three, four weeks. Because if you can't catch the ball and throw it to first base or whatever, then it doesn't matter how well you can hit. And what do those kids beg every week for? When do we get to hit? We we want to swing the bat. We want to put some points on the board. We love that sword, don't we? We like to go to battle with that thing. What is our sword? What is it that we can be offensive with in this spiritual battle? Everything on here is is defensive. It's deflecting. It's keeping away. It's protecting. And yet we have one thing that can do battle. And it is one thing that is referred to repeatedly in Scripture with the image of a sword or a knife or a dagger. And that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we're going to do a little work here on what the Word of God is because Jesus is often referred to as the Word of God, right? Well, the two are kind of synonymous. We think of the Bible as the Word of God. Scripture is the Word of God. And in some cases, Scripture... And the holy writings that we have are the manifestation of the story and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the two kind of go together. But throughout scripture, we see them used interchangeably and described as a sword. Paul would also write that the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Isaiah writes about uh, the image of, of, of Jesus in a spiritual realm with a sword coming out of his mouth. And John also has that same vision when he writes Revelation. Jesus, the words he speaks, the words that are recorded and preserved for us, they have the power to cut, to divide, to penetrate. They're not the weapons that we use to destroy the enemy. I want to be clear about that. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It is not the sword of the crushing of other people. We are not to weaponize the gospel. We are not to weaponize scripture. We do that, though. We like to find that one verse that proves our point. We ignore everything that's around it. 
that inconvenient context gets in the way. We love to proof text and we love to crush people with what the Bible has to say. We like language of condemnation. We like hearing that God's going to crush the enemy. We like hearing that we're on the winning side. But the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that penetrating, dividing, convicting sword, why is it so powerful? Because when you've been struck with a sharp edge, you know it. You know it. You feel it. It moves you to action. I have a really bad habit of cutting myself. I'm kind of sloppy with knives sometimes, and, and I've got all kinds of scars and nicks all over my hands from cutting myself and doing things. I've got, I've got one here that reminds me of Brooklyn Wilson all the time. I guess she's already gone, but I've got one here that is, I, I, was, I was helping, she had a pumpkin or something she was decorating for school, and it was at our house, and, and we were getting it ready, and she was going to take it to school. We were helping out. They were busy, and I was trying to cut the stem off of this pumpkin, and I just grabbed a steak knife or something and just, you know, and it slipped and it slapped against my hand and just, and I still have little serrated knife marks on that knuckle. I'll always think of Brooklyn when I look at that and that stupid pumpkin. No, um, when I cut myself, I know it. I feel it. I see it. Hurts deep. And yet the sword of the word of God is all the more penetrating, does more damage. You know you've been struck with it. It's convicting. That's that thing you feel in your heart when you read the Bible and it hits you right where you need it to hit you. That's because the word of God has the power to do that, to convict and motivate and inspire. It also means that when that hits the heart of a guilty conscience, sometimes the response can be anger. And bitterness. My response is to fall on my face in tears, thanking God for what he's done for me, because that's who I am. But some people, some people struggle with that emotion and that response. Some people are angry when they have to confront their own sin. I have been. And we have to be careful how we use that sword. We can use it to convict people, to remind people, to teach people, or we can use it to destroy people, cut their heads off. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is an offensive weapon, but it is not meant to offend. It is not meant to destroy. It is meant to convict. We should use it as such. We make a choice every day when we wake up what to put on for the day. We base that on what we plan to do that day, what the weather is outside, who we're going to see, where we're going, and sometimes what we have to be protected against. We need to know that spiritual warfare is real. We need to know it's active. We need to know what's happening all around us. And we need to know how to dress ourselves for the occasion. Paul tells us how. Don't put your own version of it in there like we've talked about this morning. Go with what Paul recommends. Go with what Paul recommends. And why do we do all of it? Paul says, so that you will stand firm so that your feet can be firmly planted and not moved by the things of this world that Satan will use against you. We are all in battle. We are all hurting. We are all struggling. It is the nature of mankind when you are inclined to spiritual thinking. We are all suffering in the same war and in the same battle, and we are weary, and it's okay. 
And when you catch yourself looking at someone else who is struggling along the way, do not think to yourself, boy, glad that's not me. It is you. And if it's not right now, it will be. And we all have to rely on one another because we're not fighting the battle alone. And that's the beauty of it, and that's the genius of it. We're not fighting the battle alone. Let's put on our armor. Let's go to battle together, together, an army of one, united in Christ. If there's anything we can help you with in that battle and on that journey this morning, I want to encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity while we're together to let us know about it so we can pray for you. If you need to accept Jesus Christ, to be made a Christian, to be clothed in his righteousness, then we want to do that for you as well. You can come now as we stand and while we sing together.